Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. With the November 8th elections fast approaching, we turn our attention this week and next week to the race for state superintendent of public instruction. This week's guest is Terry Gilbert, the Democratic candidate for state superintendent. He's a career educator, former president of the Idaho Education Association. I had a chance to talk to him about his vision for the job, his priorities if elected, and he talks about what he considers to be an existential threat facing Idaho education. Here's my interview with Terry Gilbert. Well, thank you for joining me this week to talk about the campaign and talk about education topics. So let's start with where you are right now. You've been on this campaign trail for more than six months. Is there one thing that you're hearing out there over and over about education in the state that's maybe surprised you or is shaping the way you're approaching the campaign? Depends on the audience. Okay. <clears throat> when I talk with teachers, they're talking about they need more time. Mm -hmm. They would like to do more one-on-one -on -one with students. When I talk to the general public, <clears throat> every once in a while, it's something about CRT, CRT, CRT. So those are the two <clears throat> divisions that I approach. Really kind of polar opposites, and I want to get to both uh, you know, teacher retention yeah. and uh, the CRT issue. But what about you? What, what would your top priority be if you were elected? I'm very concerned about the what I call uh, the vultures, the educational vultures, who, like the Idaho Freedom Foundation, that entity wants to destroy public education and create a corporate system of education. Vulture vouchers is what I call them. When the head of Idaho Freedom Foundation called uh, teachers and the education system grotesque, that lit a fire under me. I've been in education a long time. I know teachers. They're my families. I feel very deeply about them. And over the many years that I was in the classroom and then dealt with teachers, I know them as good people. They're not grotesque. <clears throat> when I was in Twin Falls on April 7th, debating the three Republican candidates at the time, and I was the lone Democrat, <clears throat> I turned to the audience and I said, now, Wayne Hoffman said that <clears throat> public education was grotesque. So I'm going to ask you, audience members, how many of you are grotesque? No one stood up and said, oh, I am grotesque, because I went to public schools. But that was infuriating to me, but that's his <clears throat> modus operandi, too, to, to insult people. And it goes back to, you wrote a piece about this a few weeks ago, about critical race theory and the threat. You, you see this as an existential threat to public education. At least the rhetoric, I guess. The, the rhetoric. The rhetoric is a threat because <clears throat> our public schools are key to the retention of our democracy. I feel that keenly. I was an American government teacher at Marsing to begin my career. Public schools are precious to us, and if we lose public schools, we will eventually lose democracy as schools become corporate. So that is a very important issue for me. And my, I want public money for public schools. 
and I want more money for public schools. But you're talking now to someone who entered the classroom many years ago and have seen how our legislators over the years have treated both public educators and the public education system. And we need to build much more respect for these good people who are working with our children in public schools. So how do you reconcile that concern uh, about the threat facing public education with school choice that already exists in Idaho? Yes. And school choice is going to be here. The charter schools, the virtual charters, homeschooling, that's not going away and right. would be part of the education landscape if you're elected. So where does that have a place in your, in your picture of education? <clears throat> Those people who are brave enough to teach at home have my respect. My wife and I <clears throat> decided we would never do that. There's so much to education that even though we were graduates of Northwest Nazarene College and <clears throat> were trained as educators, that was a responsibility we did not want to accept. I have found, by the way, in my conversations with homeschools, the burden normally falls on the female. The husband's out working, the female is teaching the children. So that's a choice, <clears throat> and some people like that choice. And then we have uh, charter schools. They're called public charter schools. I hope they are meeting the demands of the public. I don't know a lot about public charter schools. I've not seen the textbooks they're using. I don't know how they're teaching American government. I hope they're doing it credibly, doing it well to maintain <clears throat> the desire of our youth to work with democracy. We have uh, magnet schools. We have about five different choices, including public schools. And I think choices are good. I do not like the voucher system. I do not like it. So charter schools, but not a, a voucher system. That's right. Uh, charter schools, but not a voucher system. Because what happens is that <clears throat> I use the word corporate on purpose. <clears throat> what we've seen is kind of a stair step. Criticisms of our public schools. They're teaching, do you know that lady down the street that you've known for years? She's indoctrinating your children. So they try to scare parents. And then when, when parents start withdrawing from the public education system, then they bring the corporate masters in. Dark money, deep pockets. And they say, well, we'll, we'll build a, charter, uh, a voucher school here. We'll call it the Terry Gilbert School of Good Repute, okay? And they'll try to attract public school students away from the public school into their uh, voucher schools. I think that is against democracy. <clears throat> public schools are the cornerstone of our democracy. I feel very keenly about our democracy, and we're on the cusp of losing our democracy in this country. We are right on the edge of that, as far as I'm concerned.
Let's talk about the legislature and some of its decisions on education funding uh, over recent years. I mean, there's been a push in teacher pay. There's been a push to put additional money into employee benefits. Right. Literacy, the list goes on. Where do you think the legislature is putting money in the right places, and where do you think the legislature is coming up short in terms of funding public education? Well, once again, you're talking to someone who's been in public education for a long time. I was delighted that Governor Little recommended infusion of money. In fact, in one of the newspapers, I talked to the columnist, and after my conversation, the headline on the column was, Idaho is a wash in money, use it. That was my sentiment. When I first issued a press release about it, we had $1.3 billion. And I said, why do we have teachers leaving the state? We have overcrowded classrooms. Teachers don't have time to teach. We have underpaid support personnel. And we have $1.3 billion. Plus, <clears throat> we are seeing that the, <clears throat> the citizens in the towns have to pass a levy. We have $1.3 billion. Well, that... And now we don't have 1.3, we have 1.9. Yes, it arose to, rounding it off, $2 billion. Now, I was a part of Reclaim Idaho. I signed it, and I took it around to others and had them sign it. And I'm delighted that that kind of pressure caused the governor to say, well, let's use some of this money. And I would like to say, without braggadocio, I had something to do with it anyway. I got into this race because I wanted to make a difference. We don't have diverse voices in this state. We are a one-party state. That is not a good situation for any state. I don't care if it's Democrats or Republicans in that one-party state. I wanted to raise my voice uh, to have a difference, and that's what I hope I've done. Okay. So on September 1st, the legislature and Governor Little agreed on the $330 million of additional money for K-12. You've talked about how you'd like to see some of that go into facilities. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of resistance at the State House uh, to state funding of facilities. That's been considered a local, uh, a local responsibility. How do, you, how do you change that equation? How, how do you change that approach to funding school facilities? <laughs> I think government has a moral obligation to create a fair tax system. It's a moral obligation. We have families out there who are struggling right now. And part of my answer is we have exempted billions of dollars from taxation over the years. We're not receiving that money into our public education system. We've exempted for corporations and for individuals, powerful individuals. We've not changed the tax exemptions that <clears throat> equated at the beginning about 17 tax exemptions to the last time I saw was 116 tax exemptions. That's not a good situation. <clears throat> so with regard to levies, let me say this. I think the state legislature should pick up the cost of those levies. 
The bonds for building is probably a little more problematic, but the legislature could do a lot more than it has been doing to relieve our over overburdened taxpayers. And I'm thinking of uh, the Hispanic family that sends their people out in the fields to every day, and they don't earn all that much money, but they have to pay taxes. That should be relieved and morally should be relieved by the state of Idaho itself. Let's talk a little bit about teacher pay and what the legislature has done in past years in terms of teacher pay. And I'll, I'll throw in the additional money that the legislature is putting into employee benefits, uh, school employee benefits. Why is that not addressing or resolving some of the teacher shortage issues that we're seeing? I mean, the, the money is being put in, and I know that there's, you know, you're going to say there's need for more here, but there is money going in. Why is it not uh, making a difference? Why is it not having an immediate effect? Right, right. So I'm reminded of the young teacher from Twin Falls whose mother I talked with, mother was also a teacher now retired. She said, Terry, my daughter is going to teach in Utah. She's going to earn 27,000 additional dollars a year. Well, why wouldn't she leave? And then I'm thinking of a Middleton teacher who took his family to Oregon because of pay. <clears throat> We have had an attitude by the legislature, tight-wadded attitude by the legislature. We're not going to throw money at education. I'd like to see them try. They say we're not going to throw money at education. And so we're starting to lose, as we said that it would happen, we're starting to lose our teachers and support personnel. School districts are having a difficult time finding bus drivers. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> I want to turn Idaho education into the pride of the nation. I'm not saying the first in the nation. We have a reputation nationally that we are <clears throat> too tight-fisted with regard to education. I want to change that attitude so the nation says, do you know what's happening in Idaho? The teachers are coming back. They feel respected, and that's a key word for me. <clears throat> it's not just money, it's the respect. I and that's where I was going, was is there more to this equation than just the money? Absolutely there is. It's not just money. <clears throat> I am aware of a foreign country where teachers are respected and given money. So what does the respect mean? They are giving... <clears throat> the responsibility to create the curriculum. They have to deal with the aftermath of that. But instead of the responsibility being articulated from above, and we have a corporate model, you do thus and so, you jump through so many hoops, and we will give you an increase in pay. That's not what is happening in some of the other countries that I think could lead us uh, much more completely than some legislators saying, oh, I have a corporate solution for this. We're going to have merit pay. We're going to have all these pay systems. And you jump through enough hoops, you get a little bit of extra money. Mm -hmm. But there's a, 
what do I say? There's a criticism behind that. You know, if as a teacher you chose this route, I know, now I'm going to articulate what I interpret to be the history or the attitude, you're just a teacher. Anyone can be a teacher. And so we're going to give you a little bit of money for what you do, but you're just a teacher. I talked to a former legislator. She'd been in the legislature for 14 years. I said, what attitude did you um, face? And it was the same attitude I just articulated. You're just a teacher. We're going to listen to this legislator who's a businessman, but we're not going to listen to you or your fellow teachers. And, and that's a sad attitude. So you go back years with the Idaho Education Association personally, and, and in this campaign, the, the IEA is endorsing you. Do you see a point where you and the IEA are in disagreement on the direction of education and the, the direction of teacher retention, teacher recruiting? Well, I'll make this observation. I, <clears throat> Yes, I was president of the Idaho Education Association. My fellow teachers elected me. I wasn't appointed to that position. It was just a one-year position, however. It was not a multi-year position. <clears throat> Am I in agreement with the IEA on educational issues? I think so. Was I endorsed because I was <clears throat> in agreement on all the educational issues? I don't think so. But I am somewhat concerned about the IEA and its relationship with the um, political environment in, in my state. There have been changes in the IEA since I was president. And so I'm looking at my former fellow teachers a little bit cautiously. What do you believe and what pressures are causing you to believe what you believe? I don't have answers, Kevin. Can, can you elaborate on that? I mean, what are you, well, what are you concerned with? I was uh, chair of the government relations division of the IEA. We sat down and interviewed candidates, and we endorsed some candidates, and then we s tried to get them elected. I went through the interview process. It was not a given. I haven't been part of the IEA, except in my heart. I've not been physically a part of the IEA for years. And <clears throat> I, I was curious about some of the, the stances they took regarding my candidacy and how quickly they said, well, not only will we endorse you, but we're going to give you some money to help you, and we're going to give you some personnel to help. In some cases, that has not happened. Let's talk more broadly about politics and the politics of the position you're running for. I mean, if, if you're elected, you'd be the first Democrat holding this position in, in 16 years. The politics of the state house have changed a lot since 2006. The politics of education have changed a lot since 2006. How would you navigate all of that as, as a Democrat in a Republican State House election. Well, I want to say I revere Marilyn Howard, Democrat. I revere Jerry Evans, Republican. They were wonderful 
to, to work with, and they represented education very well. I'm not going into this position saying, well, Terry Gilbert will change everything. What I'm going to do is form a movement, a cornerstone movement. Public education is the cornerstone of our democracy. So I'm going to ask people of all persuasions, Republican, Democrats, independent, youth, old people, to be a part of the cornerstone movement. And I'm going to stay in touch with them through newsletters, whatever device I may have, to say this is happening in the legislature right now. We need your phone calls. We need your input. You're part of the cornerstone movement. Let's protect the cornerstone public education in our, in our state. And what, in your view, is the measure of success at the end of this? I mean, there are a lot of student metrics that we focus on and policymakers focus on, whether it's third grade reading scores or graduation rates or go-on rates or ISAT scores. How would you define success? I mean, what's the, what's the metric that you would look at most closely? to define student success? Well, you, you pointed to one of them, and that is our literacy. Because of COVID, our literacy rate has fallen. That's not just true of Idaho, that's true nationally. So here's a, an element of success. We have a lot of retired teachers out there, and a lot of parents who have affection for young people. What I'm about to articulate is what is happening in other states too. I want a moonshot for literacy. And by that I mean, I think we could ask retired people, including retired teachers, to come in and start working under the direction of the teacher with the various students who are really very far behind. Reading to them, giving them the comfort of sitting in a classroom, uh, let's say with on pillows, and grandma comes in, or Terry Gilbert comes in and, and reads to them. That's part of the joy of learning, and I'd like to introduce the joy of learning back in our classrooms. So my idea is that we're going to <clears throat> enlist tutors to not put all the burden on the classroom teacher, but to give the classroom teacher additional help. So it may be less of a financial moonshot because right. the legislature and the governor put a lot of additional money into it. Yes, they have. You're talking about more of a moonshot in terms of putting people into the classrooms, yeah, that's, expertise in the classrooms. If we burden our teachers with additional duties, we're making a mistake. Teachers are overworked now. They're very conscientious people. And when... <clears throat> So that is exactly my idea. We need to enlist the community in our schools, in, in Marsing, for instance, get community members to come in to help our teachers. And it leads to a question I wasn't planning to ask, but as I'm listening to you, I want to ask it as a final question. The role of the teacher and how that's changed, especially these past couple of years, what teachers have gone through as as a former educator yourself, how do you how do you see that, and how do you build off of what the teachers have had to go through the past couple of years? <clears throat> My answer is 
in part a reflection of the fact that I have not been in the classroom the last couple of years. Several years ago, I awakened and I said, Mr. Gilbert, you need to go back to the classroom. And I did. I went to uh, the Boise schools and had a wonderful time, not knowing how those young people would react to this white bearded fellow coming into the class. <clears throat> it was a, an inspirational time for me. But with that understanding, I know that I have not been in the classroom. I've not had to deal with COVID and all the interruptions. Our teachers are tired. They've been under duress for a long time. And their usual approach to teaching has been interrupted. I know that. We have to have some understanding of that and bless our teachers for staying in the classroom in Idaho. I just talked about several of those that I know have left. I understand why they've left, but what about those that remain? And are we going to have a viable school system in every community? That's, I think, a serious question. Are we going to have public schools is also a serious question with all the criticism of public education. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about all of this, and thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate your work. Again, that was Terry Gilbert, the Democratic candidate for State Superintendent of Public Instruction. Next week on the podcast, we will have an interview with Debbie Critchfield, the Republican nominee. And if you want to read more about this race, we have plenty more for you at idahoednews.org. Sadie Dittenberg has profiles of both Gilbert and Critchfield. Those are on our website. And we also asked both of the candidates to fill out uh, questionnaires, uh, talk about the issues in their own words. You can link to those questionnaires also at idahoednews.org. And much more at our website. I do a piece uh, this week looking at vaccinations, what happened with childhood vaccinations during the pandemic. And here we're not talking about the COVID-19 vaccines. We're talking about all the other vaccinations that have been recommended for kids for years. Anything from uh, vaccinations for measles to polio to whooping cough. What is happening with those uh, with those vaccination rates and what happened during the pandemic? I have that story at idahoednews.org. Carly Flandro has a piece looking at how nonprofits are trying to work with schools to focus on and spotlight uh, chronic absenteeism in the schools. Devin Bodkin has a closer look at the $250 million bond issue that's been proposed in the Idaho Falls School District. And we have the latest on the controversy surrounding Idaho's anti-abortion laws and how that affects the University of Idaho and operations at the U of I. All of that at idahoednews.org. Follow us on Twitter at Idaho Ed News. Uh, we tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on any breaking news items. Follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. Comment on our stories at on our Facebook page. And check back next Friday for another edition of the podcast. Again, that will be with uh, Republican State Superintendent's candidate, Debbie Critchfield. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.